everyone, welcome to the 49th episode of Everyday Tunnel. With me tonight, as always, is my co-host Bob the Bandhammer Wang and our guest from Thraden University, Phil Gallagher. Say hello, guys. Hello, guys. Hello, guys. <laughs> How's it going, Phil? We, are you excited to be on the show tonight? Yeah, I, I love Legacy and talking about Legacy is like the second best thing with playing Legacy, of course, being the best thing. Which you are doing on your channel on Twitch right now, aren't you? Yes. For uh, our viewers, can you plug your channel? Yeah, so I'm Death and Taxes for the Win on Twitch. And most of the time I'm playing D&T, although I'm kind of a Thalia and Friends of Thalia channel. Great, great. And Bob, what have you been up to lately? I don't know, losing a lot? <laughs> Yeah, so I'm in I'm in the uh, third season of the Legacy Premier League. I've experimented with a whole bunch of different decks. I, I I'm not sure what deck is like great. I, I don't know if there's going to be a great deck like Grixis Delver or Miracles used to be, but we'll see. Okay, this show, as you guys can probably already tell from the title, is dedicated to a very special deck in the Legacy format right now that I've been thinking about a lot lately, uh, especially since I heard a couple of people make comments on it. Um, the first time it happened was when Cherry Thompson on the GAM or GAME podcast that he runs talked about Death in Texas for the Pro Tour, and he called it maybe the best deck in the format, which is always like a comment that stands out in a wide open format as Legacy. And then later on, Bob in one of his videos also said, as much as it pains me to say, Death in Texas might just be the best deck in the format. So here we are today. Guys, what do you think about Death in Texas right now? Did it really live up to what, like, especially Bob, you recently said about it? So yeah, my take on it is that there, like I said, there might not be a best deck in Legacy anymore in the same way that Miracles and Grixis Delver were, but there might be, like, cycles and changes in the metagame where, like, one deck is the best deck for a week or a month or, or maybe slightly longer than that. But generally, like, there are enough sideboard cards and hate that it's not going to be necessarily the best deck forever. So I think Sneak and Show was one of the best decks for the first couple of weeks. And now we've come around to the cycle where I feel like Death and Taxes is really strong and really well positioned against almost every deck in the field. Do you agree, Phil? You've played a lot of Death and Taxes as of late. Or I guess for quite a while, actually. <laughs> for, for a long time. Including in some metagames that I probably shouldn't have. Um, <laughs> oh, we've all been there. <laughs> there have been some rough times for D&D players recently. But as far as right now goes, I'm sitting at somewhere between like a 72 and a 73% uh, win percentage against the field, uh, which is extremely good. And I feel like there are very few bad matchups right now, and my data is tending to support that. So if DNT is not the best deck at this particular moment, it is very, very close to being that. Yeah, that that's like, to me... I am always reluctant to call out a deck as the best deck. I, I rather prefer to call it like one of the strongest decks or whatever. But I guess that's just semantics. Um, because I think we all agree that Death in Texas right now is really strong. And it's actually quite unusual for people to somewhat agree on a non-blue deck being probably even... Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna commit to it being the best deck in the format right now. So, what would you, would you guys say since the Death of Chairman Ban has actually changed to put this deck on that next level that it hadn't been to before? Well, okay, so the big thing that changed was Deathrite and Prober Band, and then you know the Checkpile deck that had tons of Colgan's commands as well as the Grixis Delver deck, which could often just get under the uh, under the taxing effects with Deathrite Shaman. Like both of those decks slash archetypes have taken a huge hit, and in addition to that, like the decks that have come in to fill the metagame, like a lot of Chalice of the Void decks are generally favorable matchups for Death and Taxes. So pretty much, you know, the things that were good against Taxes are gone, and the things that are you know not so great against Taxes has risen up, and Taxes has um, you know, been a good position to fight them. To kind of expand on that, Legacy's also slowed down a little bit. Like, in, in the Deathrite Shaman era, there were a lot of times, like, where your opponent would lead on, like, Deathrite on the play, followed by True Name, and you were just kind of in a situation where it's like, crap, I don't have time to set up. I don't have time to get this vial on three to, like, let my recruiters and Flicker Wisps really take over the game. And now most of the time you have that. Like, even the Delver decks of, of right now are just slower at killing you. So, like, Nimble Mongoose isn't an early game threat, at least not, like, for real. And similarly, Gurmag Angler and Death Shadow take a few turns to set up. So DNT just has time to get its game plan going in almost all the matchups now. 
So you would you would say that the general tempo of the format aligns much better with the tempo of Death and Texas these days. So you're fewer times in like an, a really awkward spot where you have to take bad trades and can maximize the the value that the deck inherently has. Like with, between all the triggered abilities and flicker wisps and stuff, it's probably one of the most value oriented playable decks in Legacy right now. Yeah, mo- most most certainly. Um, for anyone who has been watching the Legacy Premier League, when you when you have those DNT players on and you just watch them like recruiter of the guard, flicker wisp my recruiter, get another flicker wisp, and that plan just starts taking off, it's disgustingly powerful. You know what this reminds me of? You guys probably were around back then, around 2008 or 2009 uh, in standards. Okay, this is quite a stretch, but people played Mystical Teachings. And the best thing to find with Mystical Teachings was another Mystical Teachings. And I've actually seen you guys go like Recruit of the Guard for another Recruit of the Guard, Flicker Wisp, get another Recruit of the Guard. Basically, you were playing like the slowest Alluren deck in the world and you got all those recruiters <laughs> before you actually started getting value and getting value again and again and again. And that's that's really just like the bulldozer that Death in Texas can sometimes be if you're allowed to do its thing, which like not every deck in the world does. And I think Colagans Command has probably been quite problematic, like being a very consistent two for one against the deck and also taking out Wild. And that card sees like it does still see play, but much less than it used before. So it used to be that like every league you would play against a Colagans Command deck on Magic Online. And now that's not true anymore. Uh, which is wonderful. The the Grixis control decks are still playing it, and that deck is still pretty good. Um, but it's probably a tier two deck, oh, argu- arguably. There's a couple of people in the Lexi Premier League who would disagree with that, and also at the Pro Tour, <laughs> I guess. Um, I would probably agree because I'm, I'm not too fond of Grixis control in the first place, but we had a, a talk with BBD and... Um, Tana and Grace and Anorak before the previous week's LPL. And we also talked about Grixis Control. And those guys, they really kind of liked it, like, even though I'm more of a Mercus guy. But yeah, Bob, Bob, did you actually play? No, you played Grixis Control in the, the LPL this week, right? Yeah, I played Grixis Delver. Um, I think Grixis Control, like given how many people played it at the PT, it had a fairly bad showing. And I think in general, it's it's a playable deck. A lot of people are going to play it. But I, in terms of win percentage, I would rate it as tier two because it struggles to beat the combo decks, and it's also softer to wasteland than the check pile deck was because you don't have Deathrite Shaman anymore. Um, so I think what Brian did was he added up to 21 lands, and he might even consider playing 22, which I think is something that you just have to do with that kind of deck now because you don't play a mana dork, and you can always side out some lands against combo decks where you don't need the extra mana sources but i think that deck is really clunky like has lots of threes and fours like snapcaster is effectively a three at least and it's even trying to hit like five mana to flashback the colligan's command so it's just like a very mana intensive deck and has no good way of cheating on mana um and the spells it plays are efficient but they're not you know broken like the way aether vial or days are so i'm not a big fan of that deck either Okay, I'm happy we can agree on that. <laughs> so I guess next time we're going to have somebody on to, to defend that deck again. Uh, if it keeps doing well, it hasn't done as well in the LPL as of late, but I mean, there's still other leaks, I guess. So, Phil, that makes me wonder, how is your win rate different against Strix's control than, for example, against what it used to be against Checkpile? So, looking at what I have here for data, post-banning, I'm currently 3-2 and two versus Grixis control. Looking at my pre-banning data... I was five and one versus check pile, but I want to say that the check pile deck was much, much better against DNT than the modern Grixis control deck is. So my, my pre-banning data I have there is from a small sample size of about a hundred matches. But prior to that, when I was looking at my check pile data, I was I personally was batting close to like 50-50 or slightly above, but the average pilot was having something closer to like a 40% win rate or below with uh, DNT versus check pile. When you face Grixis control right now, um, even though like, I guess your sample size isn't that great, but you would feel okay. Like, where do you get gain the edge in the matchup? Is it like the, the mana disruption or just your overall value that you have in the deck? Why do you not hate this matchup? So I don't hate the matchup, uh, mostly because I'm tending to shove a lot of Mirren Crusaders into my deck as of right now, 
and that card is just cripplingly good versus checkpile. They have a hard trouble answering it. It gets to ignore their various threats or blockers like Baleful Strix, Skirmag Angler, and uh, it also dodges a bunch of removal. So just having like Mirror Crusader in your deck is sort of like a hate bear for that matchup, so to speak. I've seen you stream Mirren Crusader a couple of times before, and when you did, it was usually when you were trying out in place of what people tried with Blight, uh, Brightling. So this card was like, the card was spoiled, and everybody was like, oh, this is going to take DNT to the next level. But if you look at the results of the Pro Tour, and also on the feedback you get from pretty much, I want to say, all the experienced Death and Texas pilots, they don't really like like the card all that much like it's a great card for what it does but the impression you get is that what it does isn't really needed in death and taxes did you have the same feeling i love Brightlight. i love this card it is so incredibly powerful it has a high skill ceiling for use and it rewards perfect or as close to perfect sequencing as you can get it dominates some matchups most notably the miracles and red prison matchups though it's very strong elsewhere, like against Eldrazi. However, against the black decks that are running around Legacy right now, it's significantly worse than something like Marin Crusader or potentially even Sarah Avenger. So a lot of people play a league and their Brightling gets walled by a Baleful Strix, and that's their data set for them. And they just go like, this is awful. Why would I ever play this card? Are you still playing it right now? I think we can actually like put your deck list in the show note, but I'm not sure like what it looks right. Okay, yeah. So my current deck list has two Mirren Crusaders and one Brightling as the sort of like generic beater cards in the main deck. I really want to have two Crusaders in the deck, maybe even three, to just like make sure that Death Shadow Delver is a buy. Uh, because the like the card is just so powerful there. It dodges literally all the the removal that's commonly played there, unless they they play like an edict or two out of the sideboard, and it walls both Gurmag and uh, Death Shadow. It's interesting you mentioned Death Shadow because that was like the other big deck that came out of the Pro Tour that Team Channel Fireball showed up with. And I know Bob, you have played some Death Shadow before in Legacy as well. Like you played it in the last season of the of the LPL in the group stage. How do you feel about that deck right now, and how does it match up against Death in Texas? So I did play it, but the list I played was, I think, Grixis, and I was playing stuff like Monasterius with Spear, so it was a pretty different deck from what people showed up at the PT with. Um, but that being said, I have played the PT list a fair amount as well, and I have to say I'm not impressed by it. Like, Death Shadow, I'm just comparing it to Grixis Delver, because I think that's the closest deck. Um... Death Shadow is weaker to opposing True Name Nemesis, Baleful Strix, Swords the Plowshares, Lightning Bolt, because you know when you're playing the Death Shadow deck, you want to go to pretty much exactly 9 life against Lightning Bolt, because if you're at 10 life, they can bolt the Death Shadow. So then you're at 9 life, well, okay, then the bolt still almost kills you after, like, you know, Bolt Snap Bolt or something. So I just think that deck is weaker to a lot more cards than regular Grixis Delver is. And in exchange, you get a little bit more powerful cards in Death Shadow... Um, maybe snuff out, but now people aren't even playing snuff out because it doesn't kill Death Shadow. So, like in exchange for some slightly more powerful cards, like you are weaker to a lot more things. So, I personally don't like the deck in general, and specifically against Death and Taxes, like the people at the PT realized they needed two to three Dread of Knights to win that matchup, and so they did. Um, now, I, I personally think that you can't really show up at a GP with that many narrow sideboard cards. And honestly, even if you did, if the Death and Taxes pilot knows your plan and just like trims the white X ones, like they can still beat that um, with certain configurations. Um, so overall, I think the matchup's pretty bad for uh, Blue Black Shadow. Support it with the the data here. I am nine and one versus Death Shadow. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I guess that's a statement. <laughs> it's not close. Like, even when they are playing a bunch of Dread of Knights, like, I've just figured out how to play around them, and, like, I've adjusted my sideboard plan for the matchup to be a little bit nonsensical. Uh, and, and like Bob suggested, like, I'm just cutting Thalia's and Flicker Wisps, which normally are insane cards against Delver, but I'm just playing a slightly longer game against them, and I'm bringing in things like Gideon, Ally of Zendikar, leaving in my Revokers for Liliana the Last Hope, and when they play a Dread of Knight, it almost does nothing. And if that's the case, and like that's your plan to beat DNT, you you 
it's not working. Yeah, didn't the guy in the finals actually overcome something like double or triple Dread of Night in, in the final game because it ended up not being good enough, even though it's like still like one of the better cards you can play against Southern Texas? Yes, uh, that was Alan Wu, and he masterfully beat triple Dread of Night. Yeah, so I was just going to add, like, so here's the thing, like, when you're playing Death Shadow against creature decks, especially go-wide creature decks, like, Death and Shadow isn't, uh, sorry, Death and Taxes isn't necessarily a go-wide creature deck, but it does play a huge amount of creatures, and you really need to put yourself in a spot when you go low that you need to answer every single creature, and, like, usually you can answer the first, you know, three or four even, but then that fifth creature just beats you by itself, so it's it's definitely a tough spot. It's interesting because both of you guys don't seem to like the deck too much, yet I see guys like LSV going around even after the Pro Tour trying to recommend this to everyone and, and trying to sell it as the new big thing in Legacy. And I mean, I guess there's something to be said about like promoting his own content and stuff, but he seemed pretty convinced of the deck. And I wonder like whether we're going to see more of it or not. To me, it just feels like it was the surprise factor and the fact that they, you know, at the PT, I'm sure they had a great win rate against Southern Taxes because people didn't know their plan. But now people are going to have some time to play test against that deck with the deck that they're playing and they're going to get some reps in and figure out, you know, how to beat it. Um, added to that, I think Death Shadow is also very hard to play because you need to manage your life total. Um, I found like you generally don't want to go too low. Like usually you might want to go to like, um, you know, around 13 or 15 or so. And then when you are ready to pull your shadows, then you want to go low. But it's, it's definitely like a hard thing to manage. And I think a lot of newer players who are just picking up the deck are going to struggle with it unless they've like, you know, played the deck in modern or something. Um, so the deck is like both hard to play and weak to a lot of things that are happening in the format. Like it's also horrible against Chalice of the Void. So like, I just, I, I'm honestly like still trying to figure out how they did so well at the PT because every time I play the deck, I'm like, okay, this is kind of like Grixis Delver, but just worse. <laughs> one big upside or one big improvement the deck saw was the banning of Deathwatch Shaman and the way that like, now you actually have to beat them in the combat step. My impression with Elves has been like, you can just drain them out of Deathwatch Shaman while making a couple of jump blocks here and there. And then eventually they just die, but that's not happening anymore. I wonder, like Phil, from your perspective, you say you found ways to play around the deck and also Dread of Knights, and you already mentioned a couple of sideboard adjustments that you have made. But in general, what's your approach? Um, because I think I think that can be hard to to figure out how hard you want to press them in the early game because you're also helping them out with the life total. Uh, but I think you you do you just ignore the shadow and, and like. When it comes down, you have to sort the plowshares, and they can probably never ever like put two in the battlefield, anyways. What's what's your approach gameplay wise, not only sideboarding wise? Are you trying to beat them in the air eventually because they have to go low at some point, and then Flickerwisp can maybe do them in? Or what's your take on that? So in the game one scenarios, a lot of time the game is about mana development and management because that's when like the Thalias are still in your deck. So in game one, like Vile tends to be one of your absolute best cards, you know, as always, but especially so here. Because if you drop the early Vile and you can aggressively like waste Port and Thalia them, your superior cards just kind of take over the mid to late game uh, if you make them stumble in the early game. About the only way I'll lose a game one to Death Shadow Delver is if they get sort of a quick double creature draw and they knock me off balance with like an early thought seize or daze, so I don't get to set myself up in any way. Post board, oh, go ahead. All right, so in, in the post board games, I'm intending on playing a much slower game, and I almost don't go on the mana denial plan at all, and I, I just intend on trading resources with them for, for most of the game. Like one of my swords for one of their threats, you know, uh, one of my creatures for one of their removal spells. And because in the post board games, like I've got all these recruiters, all these, these Gideons and these higher impact cards and more answers to their threat, I just intend on dragging the game on for a long time and eventually getting them hellbent and my top of the deck tends to be better than theirs. So if we have somebody playing Death Shadow uh, listening tonight, uh, your recommendation would be to keep hands that are more aggressive, to put pressure on Death and Texas and not trying to grind it out, even though I guess most Death Shadows players are aware that they can't really do that anyway, but that it's especially important to, to actually stick an early threat and protect it. 
Yeah, I'd, I'd say that, like, the best Death Shadows hand against DNT, in my opinion, are the ones that can, like, thought seize to disrupt my early plan and then drop two threats. One threat usually isn't good enough because in the post-sideboard games, I'll have four swords to plowshares, two path to exiles, maybe a palace jailer, probably two council's judgments. So that first threat is not enough to win the game. You need both. If you wanted to improve your Death Shadow matchup, which is kind of funny because as we see in the Pro Tour, the players playing it were already aware of the problem by playing like three copies of Dread of Night. Is there anything else they could do? Or Bob, do you think it's not worth it to, to work on that matchup even more? Um, how Death Shadow can beat Death and Taxes? Yeah, I don't know. I'm struggling. Like they've already tried the uh, ham-fisted Dread of Night plan. Honestly, in blue-black, there aren't too many options. So I actually think it makes sense to splash a color. Either red for Lightning Bolt and a Braid, or green for Abrupt Decay and Golgari Charm out of the board. Those are would be like potentially other avenues to attack the deck um, that might be more effective than just the blue-black list. I, I agree, but I think that it might actually be better to splash for K Command. I know it's more expensive, and the, the Death Shadow deck operates on like very, very low resources, generally speaking. But if you need to try to beat DNT, you might need to get greedy and like try to get those two-for-ones with K commands instead of just the one-for-one one with a braid. Well, here's the thing with K command is like against Stoneforge Mystic, it often is just like a one-for-one. One. It's usually you're trading up in tempo typically because if they spend mana to equip or whatever. Um, but sometimes it's still only a one-for-one. One. I don't know. What do you think? Or, or is it just that it's a two-for-one enough of the time? And then against Stoneforge, yeah, it's maybe a one-for-one, one, but in enough situations, it's it's insane. Well, like, preferably you don't use K-Command to answer Stoneforge Mystic, right? You you try to use it to answer a piece of equipment and one other more relevant card than Stoneforge. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, but to me, like, all of this sounds that the deck has already pushed its boundaries as far as it goes with Death and Texas in mind, and adding even more cards to, to just overcome that. Because we're still talking about Legacy, right? Like... What percentage of the metagame will Death and Texas eventually be? I mean, it's more approachable as a deck for new players because it doesn't have any reserve discards. And basically, I want to say it plays a creature plan, which is also something that people have an easier time getting into a format. Uh, but even then, I think targeting Death and Texas even harder is probably going to be like minus EV, I would think, but I could be wrong. So I didn't realize that it had no reserve list cards, but now that I think about it, that's probably correct but here's a follow-up question to that is how come i don't see anybody playing all foil death and taxes because it's one of the few <laughs> decks that you can play in all foil but i feel like i've never ever seen it before i did uh mark koenig Barra used to play it when when he still played and grinded a lot of tournaments okay but i think eventually he sold it and was like it was a thing of beauty when we went to the us in 2014 i had an all foil elf stack mark had an all foil death and taxes stack felix had an all foil land stack philip had an all altered miracle stack and Tomas had like white border basics or something i don't remember <laughs> <laughs> nice uh but he still went excellent two at the gp so did you bob yeah <laughs> plus from the past another big deck to come out of the pro tour which had kind of a resurgence was Eldrazi. Uh, we saw two Eldrazi in the top four. We also saw a lot of players pick it up and play it that you would usually not associate with a deck like that. I think even somebody like Kai Buda came out playing Eldrazi and a couple of the, the big teams decided yeah this is the place they want to be. Since we are talking mainly about Dustin Texas here, how do you feel about your matchup against Eldrazi? Phil? This is one of those things where when you ask the DNT players and you ask the Eldrazi players this question, you'll get entirely different responses. No one really tends to agree on this. So I think like the best objective way to put it is that DNT cannot beat Eldrazi's best starts. Like when they just go like mimic into Thought Knots here into Smasher, that's just way too much pressure 90% of the time. I guess, basically, technically, the best start kills you in the second turn, right? But yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's <All right>. a... <laughs> Sans those, though, Eldrazi also can't beat DNT's best starts, where they're just, like, on the play, and they lead on Vile, and then Waste and Ports you into Oblivion. So there's a lot of non-games on both sides, but in sort of, like, we both have a mediocre draw games, I feel like... DNT ends up being favored just due to the equipment package and the Flicker Wisp recruiter chain as as the games go on. But it's it's even-ish as a whole. 
but a lot of the pros in testing their their Eldrazi matchups versus DNT, they did not like what they saw. Oh, they didn't? Because my impression on Twitter has been that a couple of the pros mentioned that Eldrazi, like one of the reasons to play it, was that it was good against, or supposed to be good against uh, Death and Texas. And to me, like a couple of months ago, uh, that was before the ban, but I guess that didn't affect that matchup too much. My impression had always been that Death and Texas was definitely the side you wanted to be on, like except for these these corner case scenarios that we mentioned. But in general, I would rather be on set, that side, especially with a card like um, Mirror and Crusader. Even though it's like not great, it still trades for for Thoughtnots here, and like it has a lot of potential. Like Mother of Runes isn't great, doesn't really do much, so you can't force through your equipment, except for in the air, which is also like kind of a big thing. But overall. Like, unless Eldrazi actually has a couple of, like, dedicated sideboard cards, I think that Death and Texas should be clearly favored. And I might get some hate for this comment, because I actually if only, like, my information on that matchup just comes from watching it or not. But, so what are the cards out of, of uh, Eldrazi that can actually swing it around, like, for them? Okay, so so before I do that, just to kind of, like, support what I'm saying with data, uh, right now I'm 2-2 two and two against regular Eldrazi in the, in the post-banning world. So as far as critical cards go, um, the Eldrazi deck is not going to beat you with like mimics and matter reshapers. It's the curve toppers that are the problems, like the Thought Not Seer Reality Smasher, Oblivion Sower, if they're playing that, uh, and especially Walking Ballista. Just like drawing one of those in the mid to end game and being able to deploy it for you know three or something like that is just devastating. Do you keep in Revokers in that matchup? Yes. You do for Walking Ballista? Yes. Oh, yes. That that <laughs> card is so terrifying. And additionally, the Eldrazi decks usually have Jitte in the 75, often in the main deck. And that's a card that if they if they have it, like and put that on a trampler, we're done. That's so difficult to beat. But I would think you still keep your own Jitte, right? Because it still can clean up a board of like a couple of mimics. Yeah, and if you get like a, a Jitte in the air or like a Jitte on a Mirror and Crusader or something like that, it's still extremely powerful. What's your, your take, Bob? Yeah, I mean, I think the main thing is that Death and Taxes late game is so much better due to the Stoneforge Mystic package. Basically, you assemble, you know, any creature plus a sword or plus a batter skull, and it pretty much beats Eldrazi. Um, so I think the mid to late game definitely favors Death and Taxes. And also, Eldrazi plays so little removal that it's kind of stuck trying to win that early game with a fast start. Um, I will say that I, I agree with Phil. Walking Ballista is one of the key cards in the matchup, as well as potentially Endbringer if you play it. And so to me, I, for sure, you want to be playing your Vokers on the DNT side because they're not that great game one. They probably only hit two GTs, but post-board, they get a lot better. Actually, and actually people are playing Ballista main too. Um, like I know people who are testing like four Ballista and Aldrazi because it's so good against a lot of the fair strategies. And... To me, that's um, that's interesting. It makes sense. That being said, Ballista is far less powerful in the Eldrazi Mimic build of Eldrazi because they don't play Cloud Posts. And so they have Eye of Ugin, which pretty much doesn't tap for Ballista unless you have Urborg. And then their Eldrazi Temples are also only tap for one man instead of two. So like to me, like it makes sense that they want that effect because it's good against Baleful Strix, it's good against Delver. Um, but it's not a particularly overpowering card because you're not able to cheat mana with it unless you play Cloud Post as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, Edrazi, do you think it was justified that so many people actually jumped on that train? Because I was listening to um, the uh, Leaving a Legacy podcast the other day when they were discussing the Pro Tour results, and they were kind of surprised that, that the Pro Tour, so many people opted to play Eldrazi, but also Black Red Reanimator. I think they even mentioned Charvis, the, who wrote a really great post on Reddit about his testing process and how he arrived at Black Red Reanimator. And basically what they were saying is that they always had the impression that, like, I guess, quote-unquote, good players would always like gravitate towards more controller strategies and not play these these higher variant strategies like Eldrazi or General Chalice decks or Black Red Reanimator. And I think I heavily disagree with that for the reason being that like the really good players, they don't really care about these things as long as they believe to have like a better shot at winning the tournament by going down that way. Like, if you don't have your ego in the game and you like, you don't care about how you win as long as your win percentage is higher playing a Chalice deck than playing, say, Miracles. 
uh, I think you're actually the better player if you can overcome that. So that's just something I wanted to mention. But in yeah. general, how do you feel about Eldrazi? Yeah, I 100% um, agree with you, Julian. Like the true pros don't care at all about you know if a deck is easy or hard. They'll they'll just try to maximize their win percentage. Uh, whereas you know grinders at the PTQ level might be more focused on playing. Oh, I'm going to play a blue deck. It's legacy. That being said, you did still see that phenomenon where Grixis Control was a deck in the format, but it showed up as the most played deck at the PT. So a lot of people maybe still had that mentality. Oh, I'm just going to, I like to play fair cards and Grixis Control like is okay at answering everything. So I think a lot of people like still did have that mentality, but then again, it's the PT. People just care about winning. And if they decide that Eldrazi is their best pass to victory, they're going to play it. Um, the other key thing too, and this is a question that a lot of people um, ask me is like, oh, hey, Bob, like what should I play in Legacy? Like, I'm not, I haven't been winning that much. Like, you know, how do I bring my win rate up? And to me, my, my answer is always like, okay, well, that's great. But what do you care about? Do you care about winning in the short term or in the like longer term? Because to me, like how I answer that question depends on how, how, how much they care about winning now versus winning in the long run. Because if they want to win now, I think decks like Eldrazi, Reanimator, Show and Tell are better choices. And that's not to say that there's no skill playing these decks at all. There definitely is a lot of skill. There's a reason that, like, Jonathan Angolescu was the only sneak-and-show player to finish, you know, well with the deck. It's because he's been playing the deck forever. And I think, you know, there's a reason that Eric Landon is the trophy leader on Magic Online by such a huge margin, and other people's win, win percentage with the deck is, like, only okay. Like, there still is skill in those decks, but it's easier to pick those decks up than, say, a deck like Death and Taxes or Delver. Yeah, so what's your take, Phil? Right after the banning, I thought Eldrazi was going to be one of the best decks, and though I didn't stream with it very much, I actually played something like 10 leagues with Eldrazi or something like that. I thought the deck was incredibly well positioned, uh, and I'm a big fan of Chalice of the Void personally. It just hands you so many free wins uh, to just like kind of plug a friend. Like, Lewis CBR has been crushing it with Eldrazi online. I, I think he like slipped a little bit in the trophy reader late. Trophy leader race but he's still doing like fantastically with that card. And I think that the shell is very powerful right now. So is it a deck that you think belongs to the very, very upper echelons of, of Legacy right now? So basically my question is, how do you view Legacy right now when it comes to like the very best decks? Like what are the decks you should be looking to beat when you want to take down your next medium or large size tournament? I'd say like DNT is is probably like the, the deck with, the bullseye painted on its back right now. Oh, is it really? I, I would imagine so. Like, in, in my mind, and, like, based on conversations I've had with a lot of people, like, if you want to be playing a deck, you need to have a game plan to, to beat DNT right now. And so I think DNT is one of the best decks. I think Sneak and Show is probably pretty good because its DNT matchup is good. <laughs> and that's a big reversal from a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those Sneak and Show players finally figured out how to beat Death and Taxes, and it's basically by playing Omniscience and Cunning Wish, basically becoming more like Omnitel, which was you know a pretty bad matchup for Death and Taxes. Yeah, it's kind of funny how that used to be like one of the best matchups for Death and Taxes, and these days you have to play cards like War Priest of Thune and stuff to, to even just like stand a chance. Yeah, it's it's pretty shameful what I've done to try to beat that deck. I mean, there's a, I've seen that card before, even before you shipped me that list, but it always makes me like giggle because it's it's such a dedicated hate card for really just a single matchup. I guess I mean to its credit, it also takes down Dread of Night. Yeah. Uh, so, is it even a two-two? Yeah. So War Priest of Thune is. is oh, you a can flick a bit later on, and you can well. flicker with it later for massive value. <laughs> I'm I'm currently playing with uh, Leon and Relic Order over it. But it's one of those cards that, like, I'm still I'm still testing it. Uh, I was playing it today in Five Color Humans, for example. Mm, are there any other interesting, like, variations of Death and Texas we could focus on? Because I recently read an interview that you had um, with Alan Wu, the guy who did actually win. Yeah, they won the Pro Tour, yeah. right? <laughs> so much for doing my research. No. <laughs> and he had a couple of interesting takes on Death and Texas that you said we... You could explore even further, like on your stream and in articles. Uh, so I was wondering whether you could share those with us. Yeah, so one of the things he said was that he suspected that like the best version of DNT hasn't been optimized yet, and that like the best version of DNT may take some cards from like the modern playbook and instead go up to a much larger land count and just focus more on utility lands. Even larger? Even larger. I mean, doesn't Texas already plays like uh, you play like 20 
22 or 23 lands, I would think. So stock for, for D&T is 23 lands. A lot of people are playing with 24. He suggests that something like 26 or 27 lands might be optimal. Oh, that's wild. Yeah, so so here's the rationale. He, he thinks that filling the deck with like Horizon Canopies and Mishra's Factories might let you more consistently cast your powerful cards and help you hedge against flooding as the game goes on. Interesting. Playing more lands to hedge against flooding. I mean, I can see the idea because you can cycle your, your canopies later on. It still makes it so that the cards you draw are also like less likely to be to be impactful. By the way, shout out to Bob's dog. <laughs> Dolly, come over here. <laughs> Dolly! You can be a co-host in the show. Misha's Factory is something we've actually seen out of Death and Texas grandfather Thomas Innerwolzen before. I remember the Danes actually running that technology, but I think if I understand correctly, Alan wants to run like multiple Mishra's factories, is that correct? Yeah, so he, he wants to do something like run four Horizon Canopies, four ports, four wastes, and then maybe like two or three factories, and really push hard the, the land-based value. So if I ask you right now, are you gonna try that out on stream? Because if you do, I will link it in the show notes, because I'm sure everybody listening right now will want to see that. Um, I'm absolutely going to try that out, but how soon I will do that is another question. Even if that's really good, uh, to be frank, I don't think I have time in the next, you know, 12 days or whatever to like test and optimize a list of that nature. That's something that, you know, after the GP, you know, that's when I would probably start exploring yeah. something like that, just because we're getting a little close to, to crunch time as far as testing goes. I'm, I'm just super interested in that because I'm also wondering which matchups in general are you looking to improve by that and where are you conceding points by... by Basically, you have to cut something, right? Unless you go like 60, 67 cards or something. <laughs> the Julian oh, special. Let's not talk about that. I'm actually playing 60 right now, by the way. I haven't found the best 60 first card yet. That's tricky. So yeah, but what are you cutting in, in a list like that? So one of the problems with like going up to that many lands is your creature count starts to become very low and... One of the problems, well, not the problems, but one of the things you need to be aware of with DNT is that you have more creatures in your deck for game one than you do for games two and three most of the time because you're bringing in cards like Path to Exile, Council's Judgment, Rest in Peace, Surgical Extraction, uh, stuff of that nature. So if your game one creature count is already lower than what you theoretically want, and then in post-sideboard games, you're also trimming more creatures. I'm really worried about the deck just becoming too threat-light. But I understand why you would want to play more lands. Because if you play more lands, you can more reasonably do things like recruiter chains more consistently. And if you're playing something like Palace Jailer, you can consistently cast that on, on turn four or something like that. I mean, I can see the idea behind it. What, what's threatening to me is you also play for wise so at that point like more than half of your deck is basically mana i mean yes you get four canop canopies that draw cards but that's really in a in a format like legacy where it sometimes flooding out can can be your death nail pretty much like that, that's basically why i want to see it you know because to me it sounds actually absolutely crazy but this is coming out of the guy who won the pro tour playing death and taxes and so there's probably some value to trying that i take it alan hasn't really tried it himself yet or has he um i think he did very limited testing but he was not comfortable enough with the idea to like run a deck list that that featured it and by that he probably means his teammates gave him shit for it and he was like okay okay i'm gonna play the, the standard list yeah. <laughs> you know what that sounds like to me that actually sounds a lot like the deck would be going down the path of uh, Four-Color Loam, which is a deck that actually runs something like 626 lands. And, uh, oh, I could be wrong. Could be, I think it's a the, little less. The stock maybe lists are on 27, including Dryad Arbor now. It was 26 for a long time. Okay, including for Mox Diamonds, which in a way uh, I kind of want to put on the same level as, as Etherwile uh, with regards to, to having actual business cards business cards in your deck. Bob, you actually played that deck in the in the group stage of the Legacy Premier League. That was kind of like a surprise to me. How did he actually arrive at that? And like, what do you think about that, that take uh, that Phil just mentioned? Yeah, I mean, to me, that's interesting. Like, I'm sure Alan must have observed something that he was like, oh, wow, I'm losing this game because I'm not able to make this land drop and I have all these powerful cards in my hand. So he must have observed that more often than he observed like, oh, I just drew too many lands. 
Um, the other thing about Death and Taxes is it's very mana intensive. It can always use its extra mana to port the opponent, or even like something like Batter Skull is also extremely mana intensive, which is why at a certain point in the game, like the DNT player like stops wastelanding Delver because they're trying to like return Batter Skulls and things like that. So I think it's a very mana intensive deck, and it could be the right way to go. That being said, like you know, all of the reservations you guys all listed, all, I I have them too. So I'd be curious to see if there was something like that that could work. Did you have a question on four color limb too, or like uh, why I played the deck? Yeah, yeah. So it was kind of like um, I looked at the other people playing in LPL, and I was kind of looking for a deck that was good against death and taxes, good against elves, while you know still being reasonable against a deck um, like the Epic Storm, and. Um, lands because I thought drivers might play lands, so it was kind of like in that intersection of of decks that I thought like was weird and also just happened to be favored against the matchups I was looking at, um, or at least I could like build the sideboard in seventy five to be favored in those specific matchups. So that's why I decided to play it. I decided not to play it in the single deck stage because that's kind of more like the playoffs, and I wanted to play something that I knew better. And I had been doing well with Grixis Delver, so I decided to just play what I knew. Um, that being said, I still think Four Color Loam is, is a strong deck. Um, so I I don't know. It, it's weird to me because it's it doesn't do any of the like fundamentally powerful things in Legacy. Like, for example, I think Legacy is about, you know, turn one, like, Dark Ritual, kill you, or like Delver, or turn one, like, Vile is also an insanely powerful play. Turn one Vile has won more GPs, way more GPs than turn one Chalice and has top aided more GPs as well. So I, I think um, if people talk about broken one mana plays or turn one plays, like I think turn one Vile should be talked about as much as like turn one Chalice, I think. But yeah, that's, a, that's just an aside. So like, yeah, so the four color loam deck can get a turn one Chalice, but it's a lot, it requires a few more cards to do and it's a lot more rare. And in general, it's just playing like these generic good cards like Liliana of the Veil, Knight of the Reliquary, Punishing Fire. And like those cards are really good. Um, but basically, it's going to be like, hey, are these cards good in the matchup? And you're also at the mercy of what you draw. So I don't know. I think that deck definitely has a place in the metagame. Yeah, I like it a lot. I definitely like it. I generally like these these green mid-range strategies, um, which I guess also shows in the way I play. I've said, people have told me a couple of times, like, I don't really, like, treat it as a combo deck. I just really, like, get to get the incremental advantage. Um, what I find interesting is that Phil mentioned playing more lands to, to also, like, get better mana in a way. Uh, to me, there's, like, a natural progression of, of mid-range decks or, like, Stoneforge Mystic-based mid-range decks I guess you can't say Stoneforge Mystic, but you get the idea. And to me, that's like, there's Death and Texas. And then if you want to go a little faster, you play Maverick. And if you want to go, like, dedicate to that strategy even more, you play Far alone. And I already mentioned this to you guys, and not everyone agreed with me, but I strongly believe that Green-White Maverick is not only a good deck, but actually one of the very best decks in the format right now. Uh, or at least... I want to call it the by far most underrated deck in the format. And this goes basically with the idea that Death and Texas is a good, not only a good, a great deck in the format right now, and Maverick is kind of like Death and Texas, but better mana-wise. And it's unfortunate that we couldn't have Marius Hausmann on the cast because he wants to talk about that, and I've been working with him on Crane White Maverick uh, for quite a while now, and he also did really well with it at MKM Prague. I think the only two times he lost were to to miracles uh one of the, like one time he actually kind of threw it away i have to say the other time he ran into a very unlucky string of cards which probably only comes up in like two out of 100 games or something but my idea right now and that also goes back to the idea of alan boo that death and taxes could do better if it had like better mana Maverick has that better mana. Maverick has a lot more turn one plays that give it better mana. You've got like four Noble Hyrax, four Green Sun Senates, and one Birds of Paradise, at least in what I want to call the stock list that Marius is like promoting right now. And that way you actually get to do these a little bit more over the top plays. And on top of that, you have Gaia's Cradle. And most people, including Marius, didn't believe that Gaia's Cradle is really good in the deck. But I told him, you really have to try it, because I've, I've seen what Gaia's Cradle does in, in Death and Texas. <laughs> yeah, I guess Death and Texas as well, uh, but now it's, it's turning into Maverick. And that card is transformational. And you even have like four tutors for it in the form of Knight of the Reliquary. And you guys can see the decklist I've seen. I've sent it to you, and you guys listening, you can see it in the show notes below. 
I strongly believe that this deck is really, really good. I think it has better opening hands in Death and Texas. It has more relevant turn one plays. It has better consistency mana-wise. And it also... It has better game against blue, even though that's... I still want to say it has better game against blue because of Choke and Sylvan Library, even though I can't ignore that Etherwile is probably one of the very best decks, uh, very best cards you can play against the, those blue controlish decks. But... To me, that has been my impression. I've played that deck a lot, like a lot before playing Elves, and we kind of reverted back to that old meta game in a way, and it certainly feels like when playing the deck. I would strongly recommend it to anyone looking to to play Death and Texas, but maybe with a little bit of a twist, like being a little bit more explosive, having, I would even say, a little bit more tricks up your sleeve in the form of... Um, Script Ranger, which is the one card that actually makes or breaks your game sometimes. I'm considering even playing a second Script Ranger. But yeah, I mean, we talked about that. You guys didn't really like believe me. Um, I would, I actually want to go forward and, and make a couple of Maverick streams in the near future. And I could be wrong and could turn out that it's really bad. But from everything I've seen from Marius and also from playing the deck myself, I'm really impressed with it. Also with the combo matchup. Like, I think that especially in the first game, uh, but also like post-board most of the time, Maverick actually has a better combo matchup. Uh, speaking of something like Storm combo, um, not so much against like the random Sneak Show decks. Uh, I think those, while not good against Death and Texas, uh, for Death and Texas, are even worse for, for Maverick. But other than that, especially against Storm, I'd much rather be on the Maverick side of things. But yeah, now now shoot me down and do whatever you want. But I wanted to get this out there that I really, really strongly believe that this deck is really good. I actually know Charvis tested it out for the Pro Tour as well. I think you alluded to it, but my answer to you is two words, Ether Vile. Like, it's just yeah. more yeah. powerful than... That's the one thing that's, that, that's making me doubt my opinion as yeah, well. Yeah, so like, the Mana Dorks are... The, so you play in Maverick, so it's four green sun, one noble, or one, one birds, four noble. Um, it does let you have that consistent acceleration, um, which is key in a matchup like Delver. But I do think the mana dorks are, are more liabilities in like certain matchups, like when games go long, like against Miracles and Grixis Control. And like even against Delver, like some of the time you can be like, okay, I'll ignore the mana, I'll go for the face, or I'll go for the relevant creatures instead. Um, so I think it's the fundamental question is like, you know, how powerful are these mana dorks? And I think like, they're just not quite as powerful as Ether Vile, even if they give a little bit more added consistency. Now I do see some matchups where Maverick is clearly better than Death and Taxes. Like I think in the mirror, they might be slightly ahead, but against something like Eldrazi, having Knight of the Reliquary in your deck puts you, you know, miles ahead. And against a deck like Lands as well, having Knight is, is really key. Um, so I think there are definitely matchups where I'd rather be playing Maverick over Death and Taxes. But I think against blue decks, Ether Vial is a much harder to answer card and much more powerful as well. Phil, what's your take? I guess you 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 like Death and Taxes a lot, but just let us hear. Sure. So I spent the, the last two streams I've done actually playing with an Orcish Lumberjack Loam deck of all things. Um, and That's actually a big trend in Legacy right now. It's it's Solnox's fault. He, he keeps like 5-0-ing with this Orcish Lumberjack deck, and it's a lot of fun. Um, so what I, what I saw from that is that Recurring Wasteland is insane right now, and Knight of the Reliquary is a very good threat. It can get bigger than things like Gurmag Anglers, relatively quickly and as well for the random people who are still playing Tarmogoyfs it, it outclasses those and I won so many games just by like taking a turn or two off to just wasteland my opponent into oblivion so I think the green mana denial decks like Agrolome or whatever you want to call it and, and Maverick are certainly well positioned decks and the question you're going to need to ask yourself like if you want to play one of those is is what I'm going to be doing better than what I can gain by playing D&T? And that's where it becomes a little bit trickier and like you would need to really sit down and do play testing of both, compare some data. I do really like Marius's list, although I'd be pretty tempted to slam a Shalai Voice of Plenty in there somewhere. Yeah, I can see. It's basically uh, the same. Sp uh, the, the problem about July is it's, she's not yep. green. 
Um, but it's otherwise basically the same slot as Sigarda, um, because we don't really care all that much about what Sigarda actually does, but what she is. Uh, and she's uh, a 5 5, or is she 5 4? Man, five, I haven't played five, that I deck. Think. Like, to that extent. Yeah, she's 5 5. Okay. Um, I haven't played the deck in that configuration a lot lately. But she is a big, fat green girl, and that's what we want. A flyer, a big fat green flyer, and that's why she's in the deck. You can replace her for other cards, but like having evasion and being green sun sun devil, that's the entire idea behind her. Otherwise, I would totally agree that Shalai would certainly have a spot in that, especially in like once you have cards like Cradle and stuff going. Yeah, on. that's that's the dream. Let me tell you, I've I've played a little bit of Maverick uh, in recent memory, and like Shalai plus Cradle just felt disgusting. Even worse if it's backed up by Mom. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um. It's interesting that Bob mentioned that it's all about Etherwild versus the Mana Dogs because to me, what it actually comes down to is having the power of Etherwild versus having the power of Knight. Because I think Knight is the best it's been in something like five or six years in Legacy right now. And it devastates mana bases. I think that in most of the games, Maverick actually has the slightly better mana denial even um, because it's less dependent on having that. Like your mana denial in Death and Texas is good but it's only really good when you also have wild going on. Otherwise, it's okay-ish. Whereas in in Maverick, because it has so many more turn one accelerators, you can more quickly get to a spot where you can like mana deny your opponent and actually get some value out of that tempo-wise. And that's why I really, really feel like Knight is the one card you should be looking to abuse here. And if you want to compare that the power level of that card, it's against the power level of wild. And that's, I think, the big comparison you have to make and and pick your side on on that um so i can agree with that um so taking a look from that perspective then like where do you think it's better or worse compared to a deck like four color alum so so my take on maverick and death and taxes well okay so here's a little prelude to that my take on the overall metagame is i agree death and taxes is one of the best decks i think miracles is also one of the best decks that nobody's really talking about but it absolutely it absolutely yeah, destroyed MKM Prague. It, you know, fundamentally is playing a broken card in Terminus and, you know, has enough of a supporting cast like around it. And I've, you know, at one of the MTGO challenges too, there were like maybe three in the top eight um, the week before the PT. So, and it didn't have a great showing at the PT itself, but I still think it's a deck that shouldn't be underestimated. And in my metagame tracking, it's actually the number one deck from the MDGO challenges followed by death and taxes. So I think miracles is an excellent deck. And I, I, I actually do like miracles positioning against both Maverick and death and taxes with the death and taxes side being slightly harder because they have ether vial. So that was kind of an aside is I think miracles is really good right now. Um, but I guess going back to what I was saying about Maverick was um, I, I haven't played too much Maverick, but I have played Four Color Loam. And to me, Four Color Loam, you have Chalice, you have you know some bigger Planeswalkers that are hard for Miracles to deal with, at least. So it definitely seems better against Miracles. Um, where does it seem like Four Color Loam seem worse than Maverick, that you would want to play Maverick over Four Color Loam? I totally agree that Four Color Loam is much, much better against Miracles. Uh, I think when it comes to Miracles, I'd also rather be on the Death and Texas side than on the Merrick side, because Miracles is the one matchup we have to work for the most to get to get it to like a reasonable position. The first game is really bad against Miracles. In the second game and third game, hopefully, <laughs> um, it gets a lot better, but that's still, like, you're still fighting an uphill battle. And in the overall context of the matchup, that's not very wanna be. So, that's the one big downside of Maverick, I feel, right now. Compared to Four Color Loam, I think that for Four Color Loam to be better than Maverick, it needs Mox Diamond in the opening hand. And that's really the make it or break it card. That's always the way I viewed Four Color Loam. The, not only like from the Elf's perspective, but that's also the, the, the same basic idea. Like I think if they have the Mox Diamond on the first turn, you are quite far behind with Elves. Whereas if they don't, I think you're at least even. And like... The matchups depend a lot on whether you get that mox, and like we all know, that's like there's the forty percent chance to have it, like in the opening seven, and you're not even keeping all of those. And that's basically the idea. I, I can only speak for Marius here as well. Um, Marius also kind of likes Fakal alone, but he also has the, the same problem that I have with it. That like it hinges so much on on that first turn mox diamond, which is also like a kind of a similar concept, not as pronounced in Death in Texas. That really wants to turn one uh, Etherwild, so. He's more 
gravitating towards deck that that has like less variance in in the opening hands, uh, which also goes back to having like more accelerators early on to to abuse knight even better afterwards. But compared to Forkala alone, if I could have Mox Diamond more consistently in Forkala alone, I would only play Forkala alone the entire time. And those hands are much better than the average Maverick hands for sure. But you can't always have that unless they print additional copies of that card, which would be like kind of weird. <laughs> on the reserve list oh yeah yeah so i guess they can they can always print like a better one <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i also want to agree that miracles is probably one of the most underplayed decks at least at pro tour and general probably not even but on the pro tour it certainly felt absolutely underplayed and i was listening to charity's podcast the other day and they also said they were so surprised how few people actually played miracles at the pro tour because when they built their deck they had like miracles in their mind and it was like this this huge target printed on it but then miracles didn't really show up, so where is it? I'm I'm five and four versus miracles in the post banning world, but the matchup feels pretty difficult. The modern miracles deck is way better against DNT than the Sensei's Divining Top version ever was, in my opinion, because. And by modern, you mean the current yes. day version of Sorry, miracles. Sorry, poor, yeah. poor word choice on my end. All right, so the the Neo Miracles doesn't have top in it, and Revoker used to be an awesome early play against Miracles. Like, they keep their hand on the strength of top, top, go, Revoker, top, uh-oh. And you won't, you got, like, a lot of free ones that way. And now you get way fewer free wins versus Miracles, and you kind of have to, like, grind them all out. And you don't always have cards that can just interact with their cantrips. And the games where, like, you don't have a Thalia to, like, get rid of their mana or like a spirit of the labyrinth to stop them from cantripping. A, a lot of times they're just going to like terminus you once or twice and then lock the game up with Jace. Do you also agree that you'd rather play Death on Texas against Miracles? Because to me, the idea is you have this huge, huge trump card that's even better in the first game in Vile. And talking to Miracles players, they're, always, they're like, well, if they resolve the turn one Vile, I feel like I'm miles behind. And having this kind of opportunity to actually get that, that to me, that's just, I, <laughs> I want to say, I've got this idea about magic that I want to get as many free wins, quote-unquote, as I can. And even though, like, turn one while isn't a free win, it certainly contributes to making the matchup a lot easier. So I'm going to write an article about this sometime because, like, it keeps coming up. Um, but I, I have what I call the critical card theory. And I believe that some decks have a card that it is so powerful in your deck that when you have it in your opener and it resolves, your win percentage shoots up by an absurd amount. You know, let's say at least ten percent, and I feel like for DNT that card is Ether Vial. For for Loam that card is Mox Diamond. You know, for a Reanimator deck it might be something like Entomb. For your Chalice decks it might be Chalice. And I feel like the games for Elves it's certainly Cradle. Yeah, for the games where like you do and don't have that card, you're playing entirely different sorts of Magic. And in the Miracles matchup, like turn one Vial is such a pronounced difference to your win percentage that sometimes it's even worth mulliganing an acceptable hand to see if you can find a vile hand. Oh, I've actually heard a couple of really good players say that they believe that if Death and Texas could guarantee to always have vile in the opening hand, it would far and away be the best deck in Legacy, which kind of woed me because that was that's quite the statement. I'm not sure if I can agree with it, but because it's like a very, very big statement. And of course it's like super hypothetical. It's, we, we can't really know, but that has led me to believe that maybe, even though I think the card is great, I'm still underrating Vile a little bit. I it's don't know. It's amazing the hands that you can keep that have Aether Vial in it. Like you can keep a one land Aether Vial hand with a fistful of three drops in many, many cases. And the power of Aether Vial in the late game just allowing you to just like catch up on all of the mana that you've missed is crazy. It kind of goes along with what you were saying earlier, Phil, about like if Legacy is slowed down, then your Vials are taking up to three, and that's just so powerful against all the fair decks. So we are we are reaching we've passed the one hour mark. We're probably gonna wrap it up soon, but before we do that, actually I do want to talk about this one topic which I think is gonna be on the front of a lot of people's minds is, you know, how to attack death and taxes. So we covered a little bit about Dread of Night 
Colgan's Command, I think those cards are excellent. I think something like Null Rod is also, you know, maybe should see more play right now, given how good it is against Death and Taxes, shutting down their Vials and Stoneforge Mystics. It's funny you mentioned that card. I actually had it I actually had it in my sideboard for LPL this week, uh, like one or two copies, and like, just ended up cutting, cutting it on short notice. So it's kind of funny that two people think about the same card, and probably even more, so we might see more of that card in the future. Yeah, so so what do you think, Phil? Like, obviously, we're, we're kind of speaking generally, but like, um, what sideboard cards are you most scared of, of facing? So I'd say static cards that can sit on the board and generate long-term value against my deck are the scariest cards to play against. So for example, something like Bitter Blossom. When that unexpectedly hits the battlefield out of the sideboard, DNT gets scared because it's a ton of bodies. It can trade with my creatures. It, you know, is essentially a win condition on its own. I think cards like that that can sit on the table and do me a lot of harm are the most scary things. So things like Null Rod, uh, we've already said what there is to say about Dread of Night, but things like that as well, or something like, you know, is it Staticaster where it can just keep pinging and pinging and pinging and pinging. I don't think the one-shot sideboard cards are good enough. So, like, your your things, like an Abrade, for example, it's not really a great card against D&T. It's just fine. So I would, I would be looking for heavy-hitting, probably artifacts or enchantments if you really want to get D&T good. What, what uh, enchantments? Sorry, B- Bitter Blossom was, was the one that I had in mind. Um, Okay, and I guess like only a couple decks can play it, but like something like Humility or whatever. Yeah, every once in a while, like I'll come across a Miracles deck that's playing the like Rip Helm Humility type of stuff, and those I despair a lot when I when I have to play against some of those cards, like Energy Field, another one. Yeah, I guess those enchantments and artifacts, they are especially effective when coming out of decks that you usually wouldn't bring in your artifact or enchantment removal, so they get to get to have like pretty close to a free win if they get to stick those in the second game. And then the third game, you can bring in your stuff. I guess you, you're running Council's Judgment, so that's like a catch-all answer, but you're not always bringing those in as well. Well, I think Flicker Wisps just happens to be a, a great catch-all against almost everything, you know, outside of Humility, pretty much. It, it's a good catch-all to stuff like Ensnaring Bridge and like Chalice of the Void. That it's like, that's why people side out their chalices against Death and Taxes, you know? So another one of the enchantments that I'm scared of, but like thankfully no one ever plays, is Pernicious Deed. That's like sometimes literally a 10 for 1 against DNT. Mm-hmm. That card's rough. Don't jinx it. I don't want to see that card. <laughs> so I guess that that's stuff for a future episode, but maybe maybe is there some kind of Pernicious Deed control deck out there? I want to see it. And please don't tell me it's, it's Nick Fit, okay? <laughs> <laughs> guys, okay, we're going to wrap it up for today. I hope you guys enjoyed the show. Thanks for coming on, Phil and Bob. If you guys want to hear more about this, I was thinking maybe you could leave us a review on iTunes or pretty much there, (laughs) because I think we don't even have one yet, so that would be like super, super cool if you could do that. Next week on Wednesday, we have the Losers Round 2 of the Legacy Premier League coming up. We got Wop Wang on Grixis Delva taking on Andrea Mangucci's Blue-Red Omnitel, Caleb Durwell's Man of Steel or Steel Stompy going up against Vincent Chandler's Death and Taxes. Travis Hugh on Grixis Diver is trying to overcome my elves. And then for probably the match of the week and a match that a lot of people would have likely considered to be the finals of the entire league, we have Noah Walker and former world champion Brian Brown Dune playing the Grixis Control Mirror. I'm really looking forward to that one, even though I'm not a big fan of the deck, I'm certainly a fan of both players and I really can't wait for that. So definitely tune in 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 p.m. Central European Summer Time. See you there. Other than that, if you want to leave us feedback, there's iTunes, there's Twitch, there's there's Twitter, or just check out its studio, and see you again next time. Bye-bye.